0: The uh, Declaration of Independence, of course, is one of our nation's most cherished documents. But it went through, like other documents, many uh, revisions and many drafts. And before the days of computers and the delete key, where you could just conveniently erase the thought that you had a few moments ago, changes were often made on the document itself, on top of the other words. They were either erased or written in such a way kind of like you change your report card from a, you know, an A to a B or something like that. You probably want to go the other way, but you know what I mean. You write over it in such a way that it looks like what you want it to say. Well, scientists at the Library of Congress have been, uh, been able to uncover recently these hidden layers of the Declaration of Independence that weren't other, otherwise uh, visible to the naked eye. And they could see, they discovered in 2010, that Thomas Jefferson made a very interesting word correction when he was writing the very final draft. He had originally written the phrase, our fellow subjects. But in the final draft, he had changed it to our fellow citizens. And this was the moment when Thomas Jefferson and probably others around him started thinking of himself and his neighbors, not as subjects of another nation, but as citizens of their own, as Americans. It was this moment of enlightenment, this huge change in perspective that changed the course of American history. Peter is talking here about a change in perspective, a change that is so profound that when he sees it and when others see it, he claims that it changes everything that it's a new perspective on nothing less than the questions of who is God and who am I and where is the world going. And the gospel that Peter explains in this letter gives radical answers to these questions and leads to a whole new way of life. We need to see, first of all, the the new perspective that Peter has on Jesus' suffering and his subsequent resurrection. He says in verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Now remember with me for a minute, if you've been here along with this study, who was Peter? What was going on in his life, and what had gone on in his life? Well, Peter, of course, was an apostle, but not only that, he was on the inside circle. He was one of the three most trusted apostles. But after Jesus is sentenced to death and after he goes to the cross, what does Peter do? Well, he runs, he hides, and he lies. He had this fear of other people and fear of circumstances that caused him to do the very opposite thing that he said he would do. You see, people were very big to Peter, but at that moment, God was very small. He was very nearsighted. Now, if I take off my glasses, I probably look rather funny to you, because you don't see me without my glasses that much, but you also look kind of funny to me, because I'm very nearsighted, and I cannot make out, many of you, only the ones of you that seem to have assigned seats, and you always sit in the same place, I can point to you, I know where you are, but if I wake up in the morning, and I don't know where my glasses are, and I kind of stumble out of bed, well, everything in my house is an obstacle, I trip over things, I step on Legos, I spill water, everything's an obstacle. But as soon as I find my glasses, the world is no longer as dangerous to me because everything comes into focus and I know where things are. I can navigate through my world more effectively. Well, Peter gets this this new pair of glasses, if you will, and it changes the way that he sees everything. He sees Jesus who chose to suffer for him and for you and I and to die for other people. And he sees that same Jesus raised from the dead. He sees in a sweeping, perspective-changing way that Jesus' resurrection was a vindication of his suffering. Jesus wasn't, you see, just a better rabbi. Rabbi 2.0. He wasn't just teaching spirituality 401. He's not just an example to follow. But in his suffering and in his resurrection was the whole of human history. Leslie Newbigin, who you've heard me quote often here, was a missionary to India and then came back to the West and began to see a lot of the similarities of the pluralistic thinking that was in India now residing in the West. And he said that the gospel is not the assertion that in Jesus certain qualities such as love and justice were present in exemplary manner. If this were so, we could, of course, dispense with the example once we had learned the lesson which the example teaches. But the gospel is not the illustration or even the best illustration of an idea. It is the story of actions by which the human situation is irreversibly Changed. God's actions in the person of Jesus, Him taking on the sin and the degradation of the world and allowing them to do their very worst to Him instead of Peter and instead of you and instead of me. And then rising to announce this beginning of a whole new world. This gripped Peter, it reformatted his hard drive it gave him a new pair of glasses by which the world no longer was filled only with obstacles and things to trip over but and was very dangerous but a world that it was now navigable that he could find his way through it it changed everything for him but we need to see something very very important because if we look at peter and we see this changed everything and then he along with the church changed the world turn the world upside down, wouldn't we be bound for frustration if we compare ourselves just to that idea of Peter? We're bound for frustration if we think that this, the way that this changes everything means that everything about my life will then immediately change, because we want change now. We want things to be different. Peter sees Jesus raised from the dead, and yes, he comes out of hiding. There's this immediate change. He's a, he's a new man. And begins, he begins to live his life as if the resurrection is the central point of history and the central point of his own life. But he was still Peter. He was still this person that put his foot in his mouth. He was still this person who feared people. And often people seemed very big to him and God seemed Small, And that was a struggle that he continued with. And we see this because Paul writes in Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians about this time uh, in Peter's life that was probably at least a decade or more after the events of the resurrection. And we see that Peter continued to struggle with the fear of others. Paul had to confront him because Peter had begun to give in to this religious sect that had pressured him to separate from the Gentiles, to separate from all of these people who were flocking to Jesus. They wanted Peter to join them in dividing the church along ethnic lines and Peter caves. The gospel changed everything. But years later, he's still wrestling with this fear of people. He's still wrestling to see the implications of the gospel ripple out from the center, Even the great Peter, the apostle, pillar of the the early church, needed help to see where he was falling short. He needed a brother like Paul to come alongside him and tell him that he was living in an inconsistent way to his confession of faith, that he was living in an inconsistent way with the gospel. The gospel does have the power to change everything but it's not a magic wand whereby all the ways that you've gone about life, all your old patterns of thought, all of your unhealthy instincts, just go away in an instant. The gospel changes everything, but it has to reverberate out in your life, and you need help doing that. And that's why you're here. And that's why Peter, understanding this, says, arm yourself. Peter is saying that you have to intentionally Arm yourself with the same attitude, the same mental disposition, the same resolve that led Jesus to go to the cross and suffer. Only then, only if you intentionally, regularly arm yourself with that mental disposition, with that resolve, can you then move on to verse 2, where he says, don't live the rest of your earthly lives for human desires, But rather for the will of God, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. It's a very curious list, and perhaps it's hard for us to relate to this list because it sounds so degenerate, sounds so kind of gross and weird. It's what we imagine maybe going on behind the walls of the Playboy Mansion. But what's the common denominator to these behaviors? Well, these represented to Peter in his context a life of self-absorption. These were common ways that people went about living only for themselves. These were the things that Peter's exact audience needed to leave behind and walk away from. And we need to consider that absolutely this list is relevant to us. And we need to Think about our own lives in light of this list. But what's below the list? What's deeper? How are some ways that maybe in our day we are living in a self-absorbed way? What about our context? Is it overwork? Do we overwork because success, achievement, materialism is our idol? It's our way of controlling life? Or maybe it's selfishness with our time because comfort, new experiences, the great outdoors, recreation, is the God that we're serving. And so therefore, we're too busy to be the kind of people that Paul was to Peter because we're not around. Maybe it's passivity in our relationships, in our family, with people at work. Maybe it's a lack of intimacy in relationships that exist here at church because either we're afraid of confrontation or we're afraid of what people might discover about us if we let them in too close. We're passive. We don't pursue intimacy. We don't allow others to have that role that Paul did with Peter, and Peter did with so many others to help us be armed. And how do we often counteract this? What's our our first instinct often? is we try to correct these behaviors with a little well-timed guilt or shame. If I was a better friend, if I cared more about that person, I would have been there for them. If I really loved Jesus, I wouldn't work so hard or drink so much. If I weren't such a pervert, I wouldn't have thoughts like that. Well, these sort of things may work for a time, but eventually... It'll just lead to further self-loathing and further avoidance from God. Just avoidance in a different way. The only thing that works, and by works I mean changes you holistically, is by knowing and acting upon the fact that God doesn't shame you. God doesn't loathe you. In fact, in fact, He delighted in you so much that He was willing to suffer for you. That He chose to go to the cross for you. That He loves you not because of what you do for Him, but just because. Because He is love. That's why you were loved. And when you choose to suffer, when you choose to sacrifice, when you choose to do away with the old life, You're aligning yourself with that love, with your Savior, and you get to feel His joy. You get to feel His presence. You get to be armed against the obstacles of the world. You get to know how to navigate life as it is and life as it will be. When you get this, you come to understand that these rules, the putting off and the putting on, these behavioral guidelines and and law you come to understand that they're the embodiment of love for you. They're the way that God cares for you. They're not an artificial boundary around you that say he says don't step over there because you might have too much fun. It's exactly the opposite. It's inside these walls, inside these rules, inside the law is where you get to understand and find pure joy, true joy, lasting joy. And then you can start to say, in verse 3, as Peter's telling us to, you know, I've sinned enough. You know, I've wasted enough time chasing comfort and empty pleasure. I want to live for something bigger. I want to live for something good. I want to live for something lasting and ultimately fulfilling. Even if in the short term it brings suffering. And that's what it means with that confusing turn of phrase in verse 1, where Peter says, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. He's not saying that those who suffer never sin again. It means that once you've put on this new perspective, you've had your hard drive reformatted, you begin to see the futility of sin you begin to find joy and sweetness and wisdom in pursuing what God wants you to pursue, in walking in the pathways that he's laid out for you as good. You begin to, to think of sin not as those things that you do that God is therefore then unhappy with you, but as misdirected efforts to get what God really wants for you. You begin to experience the love of God in pathways that are healthy and life-giving and integrative. And it's not just this mental adjustment. It's not just a perspective change, but it's, it's choosing to go with God in the pathways that He's laid out in all seasons and learning that they're good, experiencing that they're good, It's not just changing your mind and changing your attitude, but it's choosing to go into the presence of God in all seasons and in all situations and find him being gracious to you over and over. A new perspective is fine, but it has to be followed with action, with living in that way. So we see first the new perspective of Jesus' suffering that Peter has and that he wants you to have, but also we see finally the new perspective of Jesus' return. He says in verse 7, the end of all things is near. Now, where have you heard that or seen that before? Probably in a disaster or apocalypse movie. And this is what is written on signs by sort of crazy looking people that right before the, the, everything in the movie falls apart, right before the world falls apart. And they're there saying, I told you, see? And if you want people on the airplane or on the max to give you very wide berth, get a t-shirt or a sign with that on it. The end is near. And it really helps if there's like a plane crashing in it or a blood red moon or a, a, a bald eagle, something like that. Any of those images and people will leave you alone. And, and that's what people think of those who believe that the end is near. But what is Peter getting at? He's getting at that the suffering and the resurrection that we talked about a moment ago is a key tenet of the Christian faith and of the gospel. But it goes hand in hand with the promised return. That these are both essential parts, and you can't have one without the other. And these are frankly I recognize these are parts of the Christian story that are very difficult to buy into, to believe. But they're not pie in the sky doctrines. They're actually very life affirming and very history affirming because they both they both say in different ways that your life matters and your choices matter. What you do in life matters. Jesus' resurrection gives us reason to live towards justice and love and mercy and peace because it says that these aren't just abstract spiritual values, but they point to a life that is coming fully in Jesus' promised return. Otherwise, these great concept, concepts that we, we share and value, whether we're Christians or not, love and peace and joy, joy, Mercy, justice, they're all up for grabs. They all mean what the person in power says they mean. But they don't point to anything outside themselves. They're ultimately temporary. And all of your work for these things will come to an end and it will evaporate and it will be meaningless. Understanding the resurrection is like putting on new glasses, but so is understanding this promised return. But what are we to make of Peter's chronology here? What are we to think about the way that he talks about it as if it's tomorrow in his day? Well, I make lots of predictions when I'm scheduling meetings with people. I'll see you at 12 o'clock on Wednesday. And people that meet with me regularly more than once or twice... They know that 12 o'clock is a rather imprecise figure. My timeline, my chronology might need to be tweaked a little bit, but I'll be there. And when you're sitting there at 12.03, you should expect me at any moment, okay? What's important to that statement is not precisely when, but it's that. It's not that you weren't faithful and you completely missed the boat because you came at 1203. Yeah, I've, I've left you waiting, and that's not nice, but I'm there. It's not precisely when, but that I will meet with you. And if you believe that Jesus's return is promised, and that in some way it is imminent, in some way Peter is being accurate, that the end of all things is near, it's near to all of us, it will change the choices that you make. Maybe it will cause you to say, well, you know what, I've, I've sinned enough. I've done all of these things enough and they didn't bring me what I thought they would. I've lived for myself enough. Shouldn't I be about things that will continue to make sense after His return? Well, what are these things? And this just quickly, it's a long passage, we just have to kind of, just kind of skip these. What are these things? These things that continue to make sense, that make sense now and in the world to come. Verse 7, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Verse 8, love each other deeply. Verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Verse 10, use whatever gift you have received to serve others. Do You see, these are things that make no sense whatsoever. If you're living for yourself, if you're self-absorbed and you're just looking to get as much out of life as you can for yourself, these make no sense. But if you're living because Jesus was resurrected and you know that you will be too and you're awaiting that final return, then these make utter sense. In fact, you shouldn't be living in any other way. They matter because they mirror Those things that God desires for you now. And they mirror those things that will exist for eternity. That those terms do have value. They do have meaning. They're not up for grabs because they're given by God. They're created by God and they will exist forever. And so live in those ways. And whether you do those things, when you run yourself through that grid, you say, whether... I'm doing these things in some regular, though imperfect way. That's how you know whether you see. That's how you know whether you've got the right pair of glasses on, whether you've gotten that new perspective, whether your perspective is rich with the gospel or rich with your own interests. As we come to our confession of faith, and particularly to the table, the Lord's table is arming us to live in that way. It's arming us with the resurrection and with the promise of Jesus' return. And we participate in this meal together because it's not just you as an individual, it's not just me as an individual, but it is us that are awaiting Jesus' return and awaiting that feast that will never end end, that we'll be able to feast upon his resurrection and everything it implies, love, justice, mercy, peace, joy forever. So let's come to the table now so that we can begin, maybe for the first time, to live out of those two twin realities. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we seek to find our way in the world, that we would live with wisdom. And then if what you say is true, if your son is true, if his death and resurrection really happened, then it makes no sense to continue living, pretending that we're in control. Father, would you help us to give up that control as individuals, as a church, that we would give up our presumption of control, our illusion of control, so that we can serve. As we confess our faith, as we come to the table, would you do just that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.